Thank you, Brother Don and Luigi. Matthew chapter 16 tonight, Matthew 16. Glad for the King's Kids service taking place here simultaneously. Appreciate the work that's being done over there and and, uh, the labors and the learning that's taking place. Very grateful. Uh, We've had um, higher attendance on Wednesday night than Sunday night, largely due to King's Kids, and that's a great blessing. I want to mention concerning our Wednesday offerings here, we're going to adjust here maybe within the next week or so. Um, I've got to look back at the the schedule, and we'll have revival meeting, and we want to be able to give to that. But I want us to start contributing in our Wednesday night offerings to the two interns we'll have here this summer. We'll have two gentlemen, uh, Josh Hainline and Noah Metzinger, two gentlemen that are students at Heartland Baptist Bible College. When I was there in December, uh, they both came and interviewed, wanted a chance to come work at Canaan Baptist this summer. And I believe that they'll be a great blessing. They're hard workers. I've spoken to about every faculty member, as well as Brother Copes, and um, just to get the, the recommendation from them. And I think it would be a great blessing. We just want to be able to take care of them. I have a figure in mind that would help them and um, a responsibility I believe we would need to undertake. And then we're talking about the, the uh, uh, neighborhood Bible time this summer, as well as the team adding that part to it. And we are wanting to launch back into the bus ministry, and this will be a help to that. So there's things to pray about things uh, that, that will be moving right along. And, um, and then on top of that, I feel very burdened that we get serious about this lobby payoff. The thing just drags around. It's like a, I feel like we're contributing to a millstone and uh, it's just hanging around. I think we need to, uh, to be able to get past that, partly because if we are going to do something building-wise, it's going to take more than a, a few dollars, which is about basically what is affecting that amount as it uh, barely moves. And uh, we're, we have to get serious. And what I, when, every time I think about that, I think, but I, I know we're all strapped. But that's beside the point. You remember the widow woman who was about to die? And Elijah said, it's beside the point. And um, God has an endless supply, and he always makes a way for his church and trusting people. Amen. So we, we, if this is God's business, we need to treat it as such. And, um, and I want us to, to think and pray, and let's see if God cannot do miracles. I like the miracle working aspect of things. And uh, I just think it's a, it's a fun place to live. There should have been a few more amens than, than just one there. I, I think if you experience God, you get excited about being in the rim of seeing miracles happen. And, and, you, and you, want, you get a taste for miracles, you want to taste more. And, uh, and so I'm just saying uh, if, if the, the nature of society, the nature of Christianity is that we will always, by our natural tendency, drift. We always drift the wrong way. And so what I'm doing is always trying to fight the drift. That's what I'm supposed to do. 
And that's what you're supposed to do. That's what we're supposed to do. If not, we just kind of drift the wrong way. See, sanctification isn't automatic. It is uh, a command, but it's not automatic, and that's why it's a command. So those things, just thinking about, um, I, I was in West Virginia many times for meetings, and it was more than one occasion where somebody would bring in canned vegetables because that's all that they had to their name and they wanted to contribute. And so little is much when God is in it. And um, I think some of it was moonshine. I didn't touch that part, but it was just, at least they were giving. That's all that matters. And so it's a blessing to be able to be a part of what God's up to. Matthew 16, you there? Started last week talking about uh, Jesus. And I was trying to think of something. What would be encouraging on Wednesday night? And I thought, Jesus. Um, but it depends upon which side you are on the equation with Jesus. Jesus is the Savior, but he will also be the judge in Revelation chapter 20. But if you're responding right and you live in surrender and submission, then he's encouraging. And we saw last week Jesus as a shepherd. He's a good shepherd, the Bible says. The Bible also tells us he's a great shepherd and he's a chief shepherd. It was a very interesting study. I hope you benefited from just seeing that's what the Bible says um, concerning Jesus. Tonight, I want us to look at another aspect of this wonderful Jesus. We're looking at Matthew 16. And this is a very pivotal time in the book of Matthew, as well as Mark, uh, who deals with the parallel aspect here. It's a turning point in the Lord's ministry. For the first time in the New Testament, we find the word church used. Jesus brought it up. 122 times in the New Testament, this is the first. And here Jesus spoke openly about his death. The church he mentions in Matthew 16, 18. And he mentions his death and the cross in Matthew 16 and verse 21. And the aspect of faith runs all the way through Matthew chapter 16. I want to ask you a question. Did you ever have a favorite teacher in school? Anybody remember your favorite teacher? How many had a favorite teacher? Would you raise your hand? Was it because they were just so knowledgeable in the subject that they taught? Is that what made them your favorite? Was it because they showed you extra attention during or after class? Was it because they were good at explaining the material? Was it because they gave a test review before they actually gave you the test? Basic, basically telling you what's going to be on the test. I always love those teachers. Was it because that they didn't take role at all? Is that what maybe made them a favorite? We all have our favorites when it comes to teachers, really because they had such an influence and an impact upon our lives. You know, teachers are influencers. And I don't suppose, however, that there was ever a better teacher and we have good teachers. Um, Brother Autry's a great teacher. If he teaches you how to change oil, it's exciting. You just to see him go through that. And he's a good teacher. Tim Johnson, you, you were a teacher for many years, is that right? And Brother Johnson's great at communicating. And, and teachers 
are influencers and they impact, but no greater teacher has there ever been and no greater influencer than the Lord Jesus Christ. What a teacher. When we come to Matthew 16, we're in a class. Class is in session. And we find the teacher, Jesus, taking his class on a field trip 46 miles north from the Sea of Galilee to the city of Caesarea Philippi. You remember that? Who doesn't like a field trip? Especially when you think you're not having to do homework because of it. There's something about having class in a different location that can be conducive to learning. Well, on this day, Matthew 16, Jesus takes his class of disciples and he takes them off site for a visual lesson that they would never forget. How many visual learners do we have in here? You, you do better when there's visual aid involved. And most of us are. And there's something about seeing that enables and enhances learning. I don't know about seeing is believing, but I do know that seeing is learning. Seeing and having a visual aid, it helps the information get locked into our minds so we won't forget it. So here in Matthew 16, we find our teacher, Jesus. He's having something to teach us today that he doesn't want us to ever forget. To help us learn it. So he's going to teach it vocally. He's going to teach it visually. And this may be some Bible evidence. Maybe of the first show and tell in the Bible. So Matthew 16. Let's take a look at it. Let's stand together. Looking at verse number 13 if you're able to. Matthew 16 verse 13. We'll read down to verse 19. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, whom do men say that I, the son of man, am? And they said, some say thou art John the Baptist, some Elias and others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, but whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Tonight, I want us to talk about Jesus. What a wonderful teacher. Jesus, what a wonderful teacher. Thank you. Please be seated. Jesus was always teaching his disciples. In Matthew 21 and verse 19, early one morning, Jesus came and he saw a lone fig tree. And he saw that tree by the road and he went up to it. And what he discovered about that tree was that it had nothing but leaves. And so Matthew tells us that Jesus cursed it and said, Let no fruit grow on thee henceforward forever. And presently the fig tree withered away. 
When the disciples asked him about it in verse 20, how did the fig tree wither so quickly? Jesus took that visual lesson to teach them a lesson on faith and prayer. By the way, why was Jesus so hard on this fig tree that he cursed it? Well, he was getting across the point that the problem with the fig tree was that it advertised falsely. It had leaves but no fruit. Jesus is very serious about our advertisement. Sometimes people say, well, I'm not going to be a hypocrite. I'm just going to flaunt that I'm worldly. God's not happy with that. God's not pleased with that. He didn't save you to be the devil's brat. And then there are those who put on the pretense rather than going for the authentic and real and truly experienced God. We just go through the motions and pretend. And Jesus cursed the fig tree because he didn't save you in order that you might artificially, hypocritically, inauthentically advertise something that's not there. On another occasion in Matthew 6, Jesus points to the birds flying in the sky. He reminds them how God feeds and cares for them. He then points to the ground at the flowers, reminds them how God cares for them. And with those visuals in mind, he tells them, you should have nothing to worry about. If the flowers don't worry, the birds don't worry, you don't need to worry. If God will take care of the birds and the flowers, he'll take care of you. And then he reminds them in Matthew 6, so seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness in John 15. He used another teaching point about the picture of the vine and the branches to help his disciples to learn how to stay with the one who saved them. In Matthew 9, he uses a picture of the sheep and the shepherd. And these sheep are pictured as sheep without a shepherd and their great need. And he challenges the disciples with that imagery to pray that the Lord of the harvest would thrust into the harvest field laborers. See, Jesus was a teacher. He taught as he walked. Class was always in session. He's the master at taking common objects and expounding divine truth. It's like going through some holy land highlights when you trace the steps of Jesus. And it just reminds us and it reveals to us Jesus was a teacher. He had some life-changing Things to teach his disciples that day and 2,000 years later, he's still teaching us through his divine, inspired, preserved word of God. He had something to teach us that he wants to drive into our hearts that we would not forget. Now, tonight, looking at Jesus, what a wonderful teacher. I want us to look at four power words that we can find in this text. The words, not necessarily, but the concept. So the first one tonight is, in verse number 13, notice please, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi. Whenever you think of a realtor, whenever you have a conversation with a realtor, about purchasing, about buying, about looking. What is one of the things that they will emphasize? The key is location, location, location. Point number one is location. Caesarea Philippi. 
It's a city of Greek Roman culture that was known for its worship of foreign gods. Jesus announced his establishing and guaranteeing of the church's success in Caesarea Philippi. This is where he chose to make the debut for the word, the concept, for the, 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 the deeper understanding of the church. Now it's a 46 mile walk uphill from the Sea of Galilee to Caesarea Philippi just to attend class. Now I know Brother John's day, I'm sure he said when he walked to school, he walked uphill both ways. Anyway, this was a long uphill walk, 46 miles in the snow. Yes, that's right. This was the furthest north Jesus took his disciples. Why did he do that? It's the location that Jesus was getting to here. Jesus is about to teach a valuable truth about himself and the church. Why was it necessary to have them walk 46 miles to Caesarea Philippi to teach a lesson? I don't necessarily understand all the nuances. I mean, I understand the vine and the branches, the wild flowers and the birds and the fig tree. And I understand those things, but why Caesarea Philippi? And I, I could read about it and still I kind of somewhat was wondering until we visited Caesarea Philippi. I want you to see some pictures I've got Brother Cherry to put up here. This is what it looks like today. It's a beautiful place. It's big. Lots of water. And this place is very significant. Um, we're going to talk about. And this is our group here. And standing in the middle is Pastor Van Gelderen. And uh, it started to rain. Pastor Van Gelderen is actually going through Matthew 16 right here. And that's Simone, um, our tour guide that's standing there holding the umbrella. Now this is the way it looks from the distance there. You see the big cave over to the left. But now there's another slide. I want you to see the drawn aspect of what it would have looked like in the day in which Jesus would have been there. Can you go back to the other slide, Brother Cherry? But you see how similar it still is? That's the way it is right now. And we can see the cutout. You can see where the porch was. You can see where the foundation of the building was. Let me tell you a little bit about Caesarea Philippi. And you can just leave that up there for a second, Brother Cherry. The city was the center of pagan worship. The name honored the Greek god Pan. A half man, a half goat deity that was often depicted as playing a flute. He was worshipped there. When Jesus passed this way, the area was ruled by Herod, the great's son, Philip. So he renamed the place Caesarea. Now there's other Caesareas and we visited one by the ocean, by the sea, and so uh, to distinguish this Caesarea Philippi from Caesarea by the ocean, it became known as Caesarea Philippi. The city had been built near the Benaiah Spring, which gushes from a massive rock face and it flows 
into one of the streams that formed the Jordan River. One of the largest reservoirs that, that contributes to the Jordan River comes from here. Here the cult of Pan flourished. East of a large cave are the remains of shrines to Pan and inscriptions that they can discern from the second century still bearing his name. To this day, there are remains of temples and altars built in connection with idolatry. These temples and these altars were built and connected to a massive rock that dominated the landscape, giving the pagan worshipers several options of gods to worship. They could start out worshiping in the sanctuary of Pan, the god of nature associated with sexuality and fertility. Then they could walk a few feet further along what, what I would call the, the religion ridge. And they can come to the temple of Zeus and there are actually little, little placards that would tell where each one would be in those three sections. And they can offer a quick sacrifice at the temple of Zeus. Then they can go to the temple of Augustus before heading home. See, the reality is that the heart of man always gravitates to religion just like metal does to a magnet. Karl Marx, you remember that name? The German philosopher who was an atheist. He called, in his dream of a communist revolution, he called religion, listen to this quote, the opium of the people. He saw religion was, was being used by those empowered to oppress people and it made them feel better about being oppressed when they couldn't afford real opium. Religion was their fix. Religion, according to Marx, was created to control the masses. Was he right? Well, I'm not sure, but I am sure of this. Religion is the devil's attempt to keep a person from God. Religion is the devil's attempt to keep a person from God. And religion is man's attempt to get to God. And may I say that every religious attempt to get to God will always fall short. Hey, do you want some wisdom about the failed attempts of religion in trying to get to God? Here's one, Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Death. See, when the Bible speaks of death, it's referring to separation from God, spiritual separation. And that's what your religious attempts will get you. It'll get you separated from God. More religion, more separation from God. See, now those who gathered at Caesarea Philippi on this religion road to worship those pagan gods, they always walked away as empty as when they arrived. You know, they remind me of a lot of people who go to church on Sunday attempting to become more religious to get to God. The problem is, is that you can be very religious and still be very lost. It's time to step off of religion ridge and step onto relationship road that you get to through Believer's Boulevard by faith in Jesus Christ and experiencing a real, dynamic, living relationship with the real, divine, living Lord Jesus. Just as you find at Stone Mountain, this largest exposed granite in the world. 
where you have the three generals, Lee, Jackson, and Davis. If you go to Caesarea Philippi, you'll find gigantic, the place is just rock. It's just rock everywhere. Rock and beautiful uh, water flowing. But you'll find temples and altars to the Greek god Pan and Zeus and Augustus. It was to this out-of-the-way pagan place of worship and sacrificing that Jesus brought his disciples to for a visual lesson that they would never forget. If the first power word tonight is location, the second power word is confrontation. Confrontation. Let me say too, going back to that picture with the big cave, the mouth of the cave is, that would have been the, the, the temple porch would have been sitting there in front of it. That cave was the place, that area there, pretty deep into it, and, and you could see into it a good ways and see some ruins in there, and, and they would have that kind of blocked off. But that was the place which was said to be where they would sacrifice babies. And this would have been the place, the the very, what they would have thought to have been because of also, I'll get to this in a moment, so I'm kind of getting ahead, but they believed that their, that their, um, uh, 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 um, their gods would go to, to the underground world and the waters coming from the underground. So they saw all of this as a way to try to appease their God, to pray for their God to return, and the sacrificing of, of babies to please that fertility God, none of which makes sense to me. And, and this was the place where they would have thought to have literally been the gateway to hell. We go to number two, confrontation. Verse number 13, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his, his disciples saying, whom do men say that I the son of man am? And they said, some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, but whom say ye that I am? Jesus asked the disciples a question. Now, Jesus often used probing questions as he taught. He originated the question and answer time. He asked the questions, and the disciples would give the answers. By the way, that's still a great method for teaching and communicating. In fact, when we train for netcasters, we train on how to ask probing questions. Because probing questions allows you to see the condition of a person's soul and where they are in relation to Jesus without them becoming defensive. And here Jesus, near this massive limestone rock dedicated to pagan worship and idolatry, he asked the disciples some very probing questions. Now, he explicitly asked for this confession. And he asked... Uh, and, and it's not an emotional response from the people who had seen a miracle when he's asking, who do men say that I am? And they give them this response in verse 14. Again, this is not emotion because they saw something, but this is rather a studied, sincere statement. And Jesus asked Peter and, or asked the disciples and Peter responds 
in verse number 16, and Jesus accepts this confession. But notice again, it's a probing question of a general nature in verse 13. Who do men say that I am? It's a personal question in verse 15, but whom say ye that I am? Just as Jesus confronted that small band of followers that day with the piercing question, what is everybody else out there saying? Who do they say that I am? Who do you say that I am? He comes tonight confronting us with the same personal piercing question. Who do you say that Jesus is? Those of you in the back row and those who are here in the front, who do you say that Jesus is? I'm not asking who he is to the staff tonight. I'm not asking what Jesus means to Canaan Baptist Church. I'm asking, what do you believe about Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus to you? I can imagine the moment Jesus asked them that question that they all glanced over to Peter. Peter who seemed always to have something to say, hoping that he would have an answer to give. Much of the time, Peter's mouth got him into trouble. He not only would stick one foot in his mouth, but on occasion, he just would swap feet altogether. But this time, he gets it right. The big fisherman gets it right. Now, so far, we've seen two power words, location and confrontation. Let me give you a third one. Verse number 16, Peter says, I'll tell you who I think you are. Thou art the Christ the Son of the living God. Number three, confession. Confession. And of course, I'm referring to Peter's confession that day. Simon Peter answered the personal question of Jesus, whom do you say that I am? Peter said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Christ and Messiah are synonymous terms. When Jesus was being referred to as the Christ. He's saying, Jesus, you're the Messiah. Jesus, you're the one that, that, uh, that we've been uh, uh, looking for. And both Christ, the word Christ and Messiah, they mean the anointed. It was given prophetically to the coming deliverer in Isaiah 61 and verse 6. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. That's Isaiah 61 and verse 1. And Jesus preached his first sermon in Luke chapter number 4, quoting this verse. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. The word Christ or Messiah was his Hebrew name. And when Peter confessed, you're the Messiah, he was saying to Jesus, you're the one. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the one that we've been looking for. And then he adds in verse 16, the son of the living God. And before Peter had time for pride to swell up in his heart because of his answer, Jesus looked at him and said in verse 17, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Now, I'm going to say something here I hope you'll get. Before you reach the point Peter reached, after years of listening and watching and being with Jesus, you too have to lay your pride aside and ask God to show you who Jesus is. 
If you want to know who Jesus is, you're going to have to lay your pride aside and ask God to show you who Jesus is. God will show you. And for some, you'd rather have your pride than have all of Jesus. Let me tell you, you're on religion ridge. Isaiah, God took King Uzziah out of the way because his eyes were more on King Uzziah than, he was, than his eyes were on God. And God knows how to remove that obstacle from your vision of not seeing God clearly. Who do you say that Jesus is? Do you know how Peter got it right concerning Jesus Christ? It's the same way that you will get it right. Flesh and blood does not reveal this to you, but by my Father in heaven. See, only the Holy Spirit can show you that. Only the Holy Spirit can reveal that to you. Now, I can preach it to you. I can teach it to you. We can sing songs about it. You can hear solos about it. The choir can sing about it. I could read scriptures about it. But flesh and blood cannot reveal it. It has to be Holy Spirit conviction straight from the Father. No man cometh in John 6. No man comes to the Father except he be drawn. And there is no way anybody can ever claim to have been saved and on their way to heaven who's never experienced conviction being convinced sin is their problem. Hell is the consequence and Jesus is the answer. You can pray a prayer. You can pray a prayer every day. It'll not get one sin ticked off of your long laundry list. Only Jesus. And you don't get Jesus as a secret service agent. You come to him recognizing your pride will take you to hell. And until there's ever been conviction in your soul, until there's ever been a conviction deep down that convinces you sin is your problem. Your sin was what put Jesus on the cross. You've never been saved a day in your life. You never will be saved. You can be on this church roll. You can sing in the you can sing about going to heaven. Doesn't mean that that's true. Not until there's been Holy Spirit conviction. And that's what happened to Peter. And Peter, that day, Jesus said, God did this in your heart. Jesus is the long looked for Messiah, the Son of the living God, Peter. The Spirit of God told you that. See, as long as we have students who can go to Bible class, sleep in class, cheat on cheat in cheat in Bible, you don't know Holy Spirit conviction. And I have reason to suspect whether or not you even know Jesus as your Savior. Don't miss this. In the heart and mind and soul of Simon Peter first came conviction, then comes confession. The Holy Spirit convicted Peter of the truth of the person of Jesus, and then Peter confessed the truth. You know why we have some who are not confessing the truth? Because they've not been convicted about truth. And the Spirit of God works the same way today. First comes conviction of the Holy Spirit. He convinces you, then there's confession. 
We have testimony after testimony after testimony after testimony time. Some will never have a testimony that, that amounts to anything of reality. Why? Because they've gone day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out with no Holy Spirit conviction. You say, well, how do you know? Well, for one, it's my business to know. The chief shepherd is the one who calls the under-shepherd, and it's my business to make sure you're prepared for the judgment seat of Christ. Well, how do you know? Because when there's pride, God resists the proud. He's not convicting the one he's resisting. God resists the proud. When was the last time you stood up and said, I want to tell you, I ran my mouth over here in this building, and some of you know it, and I want to go on record tonight. God is right, I'm wrong. It put him on the cross, and that sin ought to put me in hell only by the grace of God I'm here tonight. And I want to take the same spot as David when he got right in Psalm 51, as 1 John 1, 9 declares, and I want to confess and get right and unload the truck tonight. Let me ask you, when was the last time that happened? Well, I did it with my, I did it with my grandma. Well, what about the bride of Christ? We're praying about a revival meeting, and some of you want to go back to Jubilee. You ain't going to have a Jubilee. You ain't going to have a time of celebration until you get serious about what Jesus is serious about. Are you going to be more excited with Jesus coming into your house, or do you get more excited when he leaves your house? See, I'm not preaching about revival. I'm preaching for it. And this was supposed to be an encouraging message, wasn't it? It all depends upon which side of Jesus you're on. Let me give you a fourth word. I didn't even have coffee this afternoon. Could you imagine had I had coffee? Number four. Let me give you the fourth word. Proclamation. Proclamation. Notice in verse 18. And I say also unto thee, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Quickly, let's, let's hit this. Now, there's a play on words. There's a play on words that Jesus is doing. When he says, and I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, he uses the Greek word Peter, Petros. That means small rock, pebble, fragment of a rock. And then he says to Peter, but upon this rock, he uses the word Petra. That's the rock of Gibraltar. That's massive rock. Don't miss it. Do you remember why Jesus brought the class to Caesarea Philippi? Why did he bring them there? Oh, I'm going to have to start all over again. Why did he bring them 46 months? We took it by bus. Why did they, they walk 46 months? Why did he bring them the furthest section north that he brought his disciples to a very wicked, wicked place? Why did he bring them there? 
What was it? Go back to teaching. Why? What, why, what was he doing? Illustration. Visual. PowerPoint. Just point. Uh, it, 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 was, it was vocal and visual. He wants to get an imagery in their mind. He wants them to never forget this. Play on words. Little rock, little pebble. I'm telling you, there's something that's going to happen on this big rock. And, and Jesus said, Thou art Peter, Petros, just a small rock, pebble of the rock, an unstable piece of rock. And upon this rock, this Petra, on this massive rock, on this foundation rock, on this mighty rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You say, Pastor, what is this mighty rock that Jesus is building his church upon? I'll tell you, it's the same rock that the psalmist spoke of in Psalm 18, verse 1 and 2, when the psalmist said, I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust, my buckler, and my horn of my salvation, and my high tower. Again, in Psalm chapter 18, and verse number 31, David said, For who is God, save the Lord, or who is a rock, Save our God. Again, in Psalm 18, verse 46, the Lord liveth and blessed be my rock and let the God of my salvation be exalted. See, we can go on and on and on, but you put it down. Jesus is the rock. He is building the church upon himself. He's the foundation. And the confession of Peter is what Jesus is saying Thou art the Christ, Peter said, and Jesus said upon that foundation, I will build my church. Jesus is the foundation of the church. Do you want to know why the church of Jesus continues to thrive through the years of persecution, conflict, martyrdoms, as the devil's destroyers have attempted to wipe it all from the face of the earth? I'll tell you why. It's because of its foundation. It's built on a sure foundation. It's built on a solid foundation. It's built on a strong foundation. It's built on a steady foundation. And that foundation is Jesus. The church of Christ is not founded on mere man, no matter how holy, no matter how enlightened or devoted he may be. It rests securely upon the revelation of the truth that the Spirit of God told to Peter about and Peter just confessed. He just communicated what God spoke to him about and Jesus said, that truth is that which I will build my church upon. And just as the church is built upon this blessed reality? Do you know that your salvation and mine is built upon the very same foundation as the church of the living God? Both the bride of Christ and his children are secure because of the security of the solid rock of Jesus. Oh, Peter talked about it in 1 Peter 2 verses 4 through 8. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 11. Now his pronouncement continues in verse number 18 because that excited you so very little. Let's keep going. And I say unto thee, verse 18, that thou art Peter and upon this rock 
I will build my church. I will build my church. Notice he didn't say, I'm going to build your church. Notice he doesn't say, you will build my church. He doesn't say, you will build your church. Jesus said, I will build my church. For in the church that Jesus builds is not made of brick and mortar. The church that Jesus builds are people's lives who come out of darkness into light. People who have repented of their sins have been born again. People who strive to walk with God and worship Him in newness of life. You see, the church is made up of those who are born again. Those who've experienced conviction that leads to confession. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Someone said that the church is not a building, the church is not a steeple, the church is not a resting place, the church is a people. And now for 2,000 years, Jesus has been building his church, one believer, one soul at a time. Back to verse 18. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Keep in mind, the pagan mind, those pagan citizens at Caesarea Philippi, that cave that I mentioned, the spring water at Caesarea Philippi created a gate to the underworld where fertility gods lived during the winter. That's what they believed. They believed that their city was literally at the gates of the underworld, the gates of hell. The pagans of Jesus' day commonly believed that their fertility gods lived in the underworld during the winter returned uh, to earth each spring. So they saw water as a symbol of the underworld and thought that their gods traveled to and from through the world, through the caves. So to entice their god Pan each year, the people of Caesarea Philippi, they engaged in horrible, vile, Wicked sins, not just including prostitution and sexual interaction of almost any kind, including with goats. Caesarea Philippi was a true red light district. And the disciples must have been shocked that Jesus is bringing them there. These devout Jews would never have condoned and would have done everything to avoid contact with something so despicable as what was committed openly here. So standing at what pagans considered a literal gate of hell, the disciples may have been amazed when Jesus said to Peter, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. We're just two handfuls and a couple extra. The gates of hell will not overpower what? The building of Christ's church. Listen, church, our fight is not with liberals. Our fight is not with Washington, nor the Me Too movement, nor the Black Lives Matter movement. 
Our fight is not against flesh and blood, but the church is in a fight, in a fight for its life. We have a real enemy who roams about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may literally devour ruthlessly. But we have a defeated enemy who was defeated at a bloody cross and an empty tomb by the name Jesus. And the gates of hell will not, will not overtake, will not overpower God's church. Gates, gates, gates are not weapons. They're not weapons of offense. Gates are, are for defense. The idea Jesus is saying here is not that the devil's going to take the gates of hell and beat the church with it. But rather, Jesus is trying to get these disciples to see in this hotbed of sinful abomination that seems to be alive and active. He says to them here, hell or death, because of what I'm about to do at the cross, death and hell, it's on the defense. And, and they are being battered. The gates of hell are being battered by the church. He's not saying that the church is a fortress and hell can't get in. He's saying that the church is an army that hell can't withstand. And these disciples, they've studied under their rabbi, their teacher, Jesus, for several years. And now, now he's telling them something that they've only heard for the first time. Jesus is going to build his church. And hell and this wicked society, it's on the defense. And it can't stop the church from penetrating. You wonder why I sometimes scratch my head when I say, we need to get all in and people bellyache and complain. We need to be disciples. We need to get right. Why should I have to tell you what the Holy Spirit has already said? Because we're not doing it. And what we're thinking, because of the way we're living, we are interpreting the Bible based upon our bad experience. We're thinking the church is on the defense. We're not on the defense. Jesus said, we're on the offense. Why do you think we come to prayer meetings? It's because we're on the offense. We're talking to the one who's the foundation of the church. The one who stood there and was not intimidated by the wickedness. So which side are you on? to attack evil and to build the church in the very place that was filled with moral corruption. Yet it was here in this pagan setting that Christ challenged his disciples and he gave them one of the most powerful statements concerning power. The church of Jesus Christ would be a church that would be capable of overcoming the worst of evils. That's why in the book of Acts, every time you find persecution, even the taking of the lives of God's people, you know what would happen? The church would flourish, vindicating the very thing that Jesus taught. The church is not supposed to hide from evil. It's supposed to confront it. 
We're not the ones just hanging on. Church, we ought to cheer up. We're on the winning side. We're not the ones on defense. There's not enough devils or demons in the universe that have enough force to prevent the completion of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I, 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 you don't have to forgive me, but you, you could choose to excuse it or you can just overlook it or you can like it or lump it, park it or pay rent, whatever you want to do with it. But I, I, I don't have a whole lot of sympathy when you've been saved um, a month, two, three, six, a year, two, three, 10, 15, and you're still not growing and you're content with it. I have no sympathy. I'm not supposed to. I'm supposed to point you to Jesus and help you get there or tell you, you make your decision, your decision makes you. Yes, you can have what you want, but in the meantime, you're gonna lose what you have. Let me say this and I'm going to get done. In verse number 19, Jesus said something to Peter. I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. You still with me? Hey, I, wouldn't have been, I would not be preaching the, what I'm, the way I'm preaching tonight if you would have said more amens. I would have just gone along with the encouraging part. But because there's no amens, I just thought you were indicating your guilt. So I just thought I got to help you with it. I don't think I've got to tell you, but just, just, just so we make it clear, Peter was not the first pope. One of the bad things over in the Bible lands is every place that the Catholics got a hold of, they knew how to ruin a beautiful site. They would ruin it and they'd put up all kinds of buildings and ornaments and it looks like Christmas decorate. Well, I'm not against that part, but they just put all these, these, oh, it just, it was so gaudy. It was, it was horrible. They know how to ruin a nice site. We found that we, we were at the place that they said was Peter's home. What did they do? They put a spaceship looking building above it. It's just, it's just bizarre. But they claim based upon this, that Peter was the first Pope. I want to tell you, the Bible tells us that Peter had a mother-in-law. I want to tell you, it may sound good to be the first pope, but it sounds bad to not be married and have a mother-in-law. <laughs> he got sorely gypped. But they say that because verse 18, they believe Jesus is saying, Peter, upon you, I'm going to build my church. He wasn't talking about little pebble. He was talking about the foundation that was Jesus. But verse 19, he gives them keys. What are keys? What do keys represent? Well, they represent authority and responsibility. You have keys. Some of you have keys to the building. It means you've got some authority. You've got some rep, uh, uh, responsibility. Or it means you're a thief. And, you know, that, that too is a possibility. There's always another possibility. But, but, but these keys he's giving Peter, it's about opening the door of faith. It's about the matter of the gospel. What he was saying is, Peter, this key is not to lock people out. It's to open up the door so that others can come. Did that happen? Well, yeah, Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, it opened the door for the way of Jews. Acts chapter 8 and following, it opened up the door for the way of the Samaritans. Acts chapter 10, and Peter had a little bit of a hard time with this, it opened up the way of the door 
of the Gentiles, for which all of us should be very thankful. It wasn't just Peter. The other apostles shared in this as well. We should make it a matter of always trying to reach more. Captain Lebee was talking about this matter of us reaching Newton County. We've got to reach our area. God put this church here. God knows, what's, God knows what it'll be like in five more years. We need to be keepers of the keys in order that we might reach more people for Jesus. I'm, I'm thankful that we had a, a good response to the outreach bingo. Something trivial, something trite, something silly. But trying to reach souls was not. I did get wind that there were some who said, I'm not going to do it. God help you. God help you for your petty selfishness, self-centeredness. Someone, I, 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 just, I, don't, I, don't, I don't ever see anybody. Do you ever go to the store? You go to a game. You go to work. You live beside somebody. You want to make any other excuses for those who are going to hell who have contact with you and know your name? Jesus hasn't stopped teaching this. Say, how do you know? Because we're still here. Let's stand together, please.